0: We're going to read, uh, starting in verse 8, and we're actually going to read all the way to verse 53 of chapter 7. I know it's a long reading, but if I were to break it up much, I'd, I'd lose the continuity of, of, the, of what's going on here. So I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. If, if you feel like you need to sit, I, you, you're not in trouble. <laughs> And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession into his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham began, became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great afflictions, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time came of the, the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with um, the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the Lord of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. The saying goes that you better know your history because those who don't are prone to repeat it. If you don't know your history, warts and all, the good and the bad, then you haven't really learned and soaked up the wisdom of making the right kind of changes that lead to future blessing. And so we know this is true. Even, uh, you know, my my, uh, secular history professor told me this. But it's doubly so as we come to the scriptures, friends, and it's it's all the more clear. I want you to see uh, Stephen, who you have officially met uh, this week. And Stephen is a man who knows his history. He is a Jew who knows the history of his people. And he's a Christian who knows the history of his God. We were actually first introduced to Stephen last week. This is... This is the, the meet and greet with Stephen, as it were. But last week we heard about him because he was chosen as one of the very first deacons to serve the church. You, you remember what we learned last week, that there was a need that arose uh, amongst the, the early believers that the widows of the Hellenists, of, of the Greek speaking uh, Christians, uh, were not. Uh, being cared for sufficiently. And so what did the church do? Well, guided by the hand of Jesus, they, they organized and strategized and ordained, and they chose seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to, to meet this demand. And one of those men was named Stephen. Stephen is a Greek speaking Jew. Stephen is a Greek speaking Jew who has become a Christian. Stephen is a Greek speaking Jew who became a Christian who's recognized as a leader and in our passage actually becomes the very turning point for the church. You could see his speech here as, uh, as, as the closing argument, as it were, in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And you're going to see, or it's going it's to take two weeks to see this. Because we're going to hear from Stephen again next week. But this week, we're seeing Stephen the messenger, speaking the word of the Lord. Because somehow Stephen the deacon has become Stephen the evangelist. He's so full of the spirit that that the specific task he's been assigned, he's just spilling out beyond, beyond it. He's not just caring for the church. He's also speaking to a world that does not yet know Christ. And as he speaks, he knows his history. Now, Stephen, we see in this passage, is in trouble. Um, He has been seized by the authorities and two charges have been brought against him. Did you notice what those charges were towards the beginning of our passage? They can be uh, summed up this way. Well, first I'll read them. If you look at chapter 6, verses um, uh, 11. In verse 11, he says, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they go on. And they set up false witnesses who said in verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. That's the key passage there. They say that Stephen speaking against the holy place and the law. Why? Well, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, indeed, Jesus said something about destroying the temple back in John. But it seems that in the very same way that false witnesses were brought against Jesus in that time to say that he was somehow going to lead a rebellion against the physical structure of the temple. No, that wasn't actually what Jesus was talking about. Um, He was talking about the temple of his body. Well, it seems that Stephen is picking up on this teaching uh, from Jesus and he's sharing it with with others and he's pointing to how the temple is actually all about Jesus. And so they bring two charges against him. What are those charges? That Stephen is against the temple and the Torah. He's against the temple, they say. He's against that structure, Herod's temple, that is in uh, the the very center of Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the temple, the temple is this crucial structure in the Old Testament in which... um, uh, you, you, it's, it's this place where all the rituals of the Jewish people take place. It's where people go to make sacrifices. It's, it's where people go to pray to God. And still in Jesus's day and in Stephen's day, the temple loomed large um, over the Jewish people as this indispensable structure to the very fabric of their religion. They, they couldn't imagine a world they couldn't imagine um, a, a, a spiritual life in which they didn't go to the temple, and so a man, a man who speaks against the temple, well, he's in he's in deep trouble. What about the Torah? The Torah are the first five books. Of the Old Testament. Uh, they are the law of Moses as it were. Because they were written by Moses. And then contain um, the law that was given from God. Uh, to, to his people. And, and if you know anything about the, uh, the, the Jewish people at this time. They are people of Moses. People of the book. People of the Torah. They've even uh, gone above and beyond. To try to keep the Torah as perfectly as they possibly could. And Jesus has a lot to say about that of course. But a man who. Who would speak against the Torah? Speak against the law? Now he's in big trouble. Now what exactly Stephen was preaching? We kind of have to pull together. We don't have a clear sense of that. But we know that a lot of what they're charging of him, him here is false. Right? They brought false witnesses against him. But we also know that Stephen is preaching Jesus. And he's preaching that Jesus is changing something about the temple and the Torah, and they don't like it. Well, how does Stephen answer these charges? He tells them a story. He tells them their story, his story. And it's a long story, isn't it? It's a story that in many ways they already know by heart. Because it's theirs. It's the it's, it's, it's story of their people. Maybe you've uh, had those key moments in your life where you sat down with your grandpa or grandma and, and, and they told you about ancestors um, that, that they can remember in their distant memory. And they'll pull out books and say, this is your story. This is where you came from. That's what Stephen is doing. You say, "Huh? what kind of a response? What kind of a defense is this? It's actually an excellent one. We'll see. Because he not only tells this story that that brings them in and, 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 and reminds them who they are. But he is showing them that through this carefully crafted uh, recitation of the Old Testament. That there are parts of the story that they're forgetting. And there are parts of the story that they would actually love to forget. Their story actually says things about the temple and the Torah. That come to Stephen's defense and that point every Christian along that storyline of the Old Testament and straight to Jesus. So I want to look at this history. The history of the Jewish people, Stephen's history, their history. And I want to look at this by seeing three threads Um, And in these three threads and the unfolding uh, story of of God's dealing with his people is this. First of all, we're going to see um, a God who cannot be contained. We're also going to see a people who will not repent. And finally, we're going to see a Messiah who we must not miss. The God who cannot be contained. This is the first thread in this Old Testament recitation, which the Jewish people um, have have become um, dull to at this point. Notice how Stephen starts. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you're the Jewish people who who love your promised land, who love the land of Israel, you're going to say, why are you starting off the story that way? Why, Why are you drawing attention to Mesopotamia? That's where Abraham came from. But notice what he's doing. He's showing that before there's any temple, before there's even a hint of the promised land, God is meeting with all his glory, is meeting Abraham, the pagan, in pagan territory. God is on the move in Mesopotamia, far outside of the promised land. You know where Mesopotamia is, right? You go north of Israel and you go, you go um, no- northeast. And then we see in verse 9 that this very thread keeps continuing. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. There you have it again. He's drawing attention to to this fact that God not only appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, but now here, here he is following Joseph to Egypt, a land of a pagan people. And... And what does God do there? Well, he's quite active in Egypt. In verse, um, we, we see that he, uh, he, uh, he went all to, to, to the far extent of being with his people in their oppression and, and calling Moses. And that's where we see in verse 33 that God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And what does he say? He says, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Again, Stephen is going out of his way to draw attention to the fact that here in a pagan place, outside of the the land of Israel, outside of the temple, you have holy ground. It goes on. It leads all the way up to verse 48 through 50. Look at that where Stephen's argument just builds and builds like a climax to say, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest Did not my hand make all these things? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, even when the temple is built, the very moment the temple is built, Solomon himself recognizes that at the dedication of this temple, it can't contain God. You see, the point over and over again is this. You can't limit God's presence within four walls in a structure in the Middle East. He's always on the move, usually where we least expect it. In Gentile territory, stirring up people that you never expect him to stir up. Uh, and, and, and where is holy ground? Holy ground is wherever God meets his people. But that's what the religious leaders won't accept. That's the problem that they have with Stephen. Because Stephen is saying not that he's anti-temple in some weird way, but but rather that he said he's seeing that God's presence is not confined to the temple, it's not limited. Already the Jewish people are, are, are gearing up to have this huge problem when the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles. Because if the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, if it's going to go to Rome and the far stretches of the of the ends of the earth, then it's got to go far beyond the temple and the temple starts to lose its special place in 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 that epoch of God's uh, redemptive plan. And, And so what happens is. The religious leaders won't have this, they want a God who will meet them on their terms, on their turf, following their rules of the Torah. But the temple and the Torah were, were, were never supposed to hold that weight. See, here's the problem. Do you see what Stephen is doing? He's pressing by appealing to, to his own history and the Jews' own history. He's showing them that they've put a weight on the temple and they've confined God's activity to the temple in a way it was never expected to, to be. Why is that? Because the temple and the Torah, for that matter, were always pointing forward to Jesus. They're always pointing forward to, to God's church, where God will come and perfectly dwell with his people wherever they are. And so on the day of Pentecost, you have what is it? Tongues of fire descending upon the church. Loud and clear. God's dwelling place is with man. Wherever Christ followers are, that's where God is. You don't need a special building to meet God. And in fact, in a sense, you never did. He was never limited to it. But the leaders are holding on to the the training wheels of the temple and won't let go. And they're going to kill Stephen over it. Now I wonder, friends, we wouldn't become enamored with places and systems, would we? We wouldn't become fixated on church buildings and physical things. And I, I think actually we, we could. And there's a history of the Christian church that's, that does this over and over again. We saw it not long after the day of Pentecost. Um, and in the time of Constantine and, and 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 not long after that where where uh, physical church buildings gain this ascendancy and fixation that they were never designed to have the early Christians met in, in houses and yet as soon as the church has enough money to to pour ornamentation and gold into a building, suddenly it starts to become like a temple and people start to become attached to god 's activity there as if it is a temple and people start to act as if movement beyond the church, the confines of a church sanctuary isn't expected. And we can fall into that pattern of thinking too. The same pattern of the the religious leaders of Stephen's day. If we become fixated on physical things, slow to move beyond our building, slow to expect that God would actually be saving sinners outside of this space. I think that's really the lie that we Sometimes tell our hearts and don't even recognize it. We think, well, God's, God's working on Sunday mornings when he, he's preaching his word, and he certainly is. But God is absolutely at work as his gospel goes forth into a world. Do we really believe that? God who cannot be contained. We see him over and over again in this story, moving, stirring up people, saving his people. But all along the way, he's not confined to their demands. He's not limited by their interpretations of his Torah. He's on the move. And that's what we're going to see more and more and more in the book of Acts. Because you know what happens in the next chapter of the book of Acts? The gospel spills outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. And so right away, if you're not on track with Stephen here and this emphasis, then you're going to get lost in the book of Acts real quick. And unfortunately, that's what happens with many of his religious leaders in his day. They just can't get past the physical temple and their interpretation of the Torah. And the control that those things give them, or so they think, over their understanding of God. They're not ready for a God who surprises them. They're not ready for a God who pushes them past their comfort zone. They're not ready for a God who goes and saves people in places that they never expected him to save them. They're just not ready for it. And Stephen's saying, but your own history is all about that. Why are they so slow to understand their own history? Well, Stephen tells them, and he appeals to their very own history. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. Look at that in verse 51, chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. It's exactly what we see in this story, isn't it? It's something that probably the religious leaders in this day would not be emphasizing week to week. They, didn't, they probably didn't like to put a spotlight on the thread that we see next. And it's this, that, that the people would not repent. Time and time again, God sent them leaders and they just rejected them. Time and time again, he sent them messengers saying, look, I, I, I'm doing something new and then. They, they, they killed them and, and, and they, they chastised them. Where did it start? It started with Joseph's brothers in Egypt. In verse 9 of chapter 7, we hear of how his brothers rejected him because he was special in God's sight and sent him into Egypt. And then in Egypt, what happened when Moses tried to save his brothers out of slavery? Well, uh, they, cha- they, they rejected him and then chased him uh, to the Gentiles. And then Moses comes back and what do they do then? Well, he takes them out of slavery, but but then they say, "Hey, we don't really want you, Moses. We'd rather have idols." And then God sends the prophets. And they persecute the prophets and they kill them. And then he sends finally his own beloved son, Jesus. And what do they do? They kill him. Because they're a stiff-necked and stubborn people because they'd rather have their comfortable temple and Torah than a God who pushes them to see that that temple and Torah are about so much more than they ever expected. And really he wants their hearts, not not their ritual actions. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now think, friends, about how many thousands of years of stubbornness are packaged into this statement. It's enough to drive you crazy. Have you ever met a person who, um, you know, you just, you you see them doing something that is killing them? And you tell them over and over again, please stop that. You've got to stop this. This is going to be your death. And they just say, who are you to tell me this? And they, they keep going back to it. I think all of us probably know someone who's like that. You say, they are stubborn. It's hard to handle. Even this week, when I was preparing the sermon, I saw a a subtle irony in the fact that I had a bad crick in my neck. And I I felt the the stiff-neckedness of of my own crick in my neck. And, And here's the thing. Every time I try to turn my neck, it's like, ah. I think that's the picture God is giving us when he, when he speaks of a stiff-necked people. When he says, Tyler, I don't turn my head because my neck is set in place. When, when, when God's people are so stubborn that they set their heads face forward and refuse to bend to God's will, refuse to turn to his obedience, that's stiff-necked stubbornness. God says it's un, that those people are uncircumcised in heart and ear. And otherwise, in other words, it's like their actions, their heart is just like a, a people that don't know God at all. We would never have stubborn and resistant hearts like this, would we? I think, in fact,. We do. We struggle with this. We struggle with being stubborn and, and actually listening to God's commands. We, we struggle with being uh, pliable to his will. And we struggle, in fact, with letting go of our idols and our, con- con- so our, our perceived control over God and bending to his desire to go where he would call us, to do the uncomfortable things he'd call us to do, and to deal with the sin that he wants us to deal with. So that there are times in even a believer's life when months and months and months go by and we dig in our heels when we hear the preaching of the word and say, yeah, I'm not going to let you touch that, God. You know, in those moments when we're digging in our heels, it's like there's no difference between us and those whose hearts haven't been changed by the Holy Spirit. And God is in fact pointing to us and saying, Warning, warning. Take care lest you fall. Don't be a stiff necked and stubborn people. Be pliable to my will. Have ears that hear, have feet that move quickly to my commands. You know, we have more in common with the people of Israel in the Old Testament than we'd like to admit. And I think that that is, in fact, uh, what Paul is pointing out time and time again in his epistles. And the author of the Hebrews really draws out in his epistle. In fact, we have a cue here that this history of a stubborn people is actually our history, too. Because in the very middle of this passage, we hear the reference that um, in, in verse 38, that Moses was the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Do you see that the very word there, congregation, is, is, is pointing to the fact that we are still the same people of God today that was in the wilderness and that resisted God then. It's a warning, warning for us that if we don't take care That in our own power, we'll end up just like those Israelites, stubborn to listen to God. But it's the final thread in this passage that we need to hear this morning. And that is the thread of, of the promised Messiah. The one whom these, this audience was rejecting. And because they rejected him, they were going to be cut off from that congregation. You see, something happens at the end of this passage throughout the entire passage. It's our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. But at the end of this passage, what does Stephen say? He says. You stiff necked people, as your fathers did, so do you. Your fathers. You see, the good news of this passage, the good news that we hear is that We don't have this doesn't have to be the end of our history. Our history doesn't have to end with verse 53. The history of God's congregation doesn't end with a stiff necked and stubborn people who dig in their heels and end with uh, uh, with with outright rebellion against God. Instead, our history goes on because in Christ. We have. We have. Hearts that have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. He's applied his his scalpel uh, to to our hearts so that we can really believe and really hear and really act and understand. And he's loosened our stiff neck so that when God calls your name, you turn and you listen. He does this, of course, through his through his Messiah. And it's interesting throughout this whole recitation, there's very little we hear about forgiveness of sins. There's very little we hear about repentance. That's unique, in fact, in the book of Acts. But we do hear about the righteous one and the one who was called to be a prophet like Moses, who in fact would be the ruler and the judge and the leader of all of the new Israel of God. That's Jesus. He is the one who's come to dwell with us as the temple of the living God. He is the one who comes with as that righteous one who fulfills the law, who impresses it upon our hearts, who teaches us by his spirit to obey his law. He is the one who gives us a continued history so that we look back on all of that and said, and, and we can say, Lord, that stubbornness, that stiff-neckedness, that's us apart from your grace. But you didn't give up on us. You never gave up on your people. In fact, you saved Jews by turning them to Jesus. And now you're saving Gentiles because your presence spills outside of the temple. And even as that temple was destroyed, Christ is that living temple who draws all people to himself through faith in him. John Calvin says this No harm can be done to the temple and the Torah when Christ is openly established as the end and truth of both. One of the most dear influences in my life and upon my heart was one of my early music teachers. And she was Jewish. She loved her history and she taught me the love of music and she taught me to love the, the Jewish history, but it breaks my heart, breaks my heart that she did not embrace the Messiah. May we be quick to receive him today. May we be quick to lay hold of him. And may we proclaim him to the Jew first and to the Gentile. For Christ has come for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich history that you've given us. A history that points to Jesus, but a history that also shows us the stubbornness of our sin. Oh, Lord, how we dig in our heels and how we resist you. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit who uh, who has come. Um, and and Lord, in the hearts of believers, of true believers, has pushed past that resistance so that we will believe and do believe. And Lord, we pray that even in those seasons of stubbornness where we dri- uh, dig in our heels, that that would not be the end of our story, but that you would work uh. Through that, to to make our hearts pliable and supple and obedient to your will. And may you do this so that our our feet would be quick to move wherever you would have us move. Not making idols of of church buildings and, um, and, and, and of reformed tradition, but rather that we would really love you. And that we would embrace your son. We pray all this in his name. Amen.